Amen. I know you've already been standing a long time, but go ahead and find your Bibles if you would. And we're going to be in 1 Peter. Last Sunday, we ventured off of 1 Peter, so we're going to return there tonight and look through a few verses. 1 Peter. Sunday morning, we looked at the glory of God and how it was just revealed to us in his goodness and his, his grace and his mercy. And we also saw that he, he, although he is full of mercy and full of grace, he also judges sin. Sin has to be paid for. And, and really, we see his mercy and his grace in that more than anything because we're not the ones who are, have to pay for our sin. Christ paid for our sin for us on the cross. He was judged for us on the cross. And that's in part what Peter deals with here. And in this passage that we're going to read together, there are a lot of differing opinions about what it says, and we're not going to um, dive too deeply into all that speculation, but we will draw out some encouraging um, principles and thoughts for us, I believe. So, beginning in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be in verse number 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure there, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your help tonight. We pray that the Spirit of God would help to communicate truth to us from this living word, help us to understand, to apply and to, at the end of the night, Lord, really just to better know you and better, more love you and better appreciate you and want to live our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Verse 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust. Jesus went to the cross and endured the most agonizing death possible because of our sin. He didn't just die, suffer and die in spite of our sin, but he suffered and he died because of our sin. Romans 5, 6 says it like this. For when we were without, yet without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. That, that would be unusual, right? To die even for a righteous person, for one person to be willing to give his life for another righteous person, that would be unusual. Yet, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
He died because of our sin. And because he died for our sin, we will never have to suffer for our sins. Notice that he once suffered for sins. That means he never has to suffer again for our sins. He's not on the cross anymore. He's seated now at the right hand of the Father, which we're going to see again shortly. And this is one of the reasons why the teaching, the false teaching that each time we partake of the Lord's Supper, that Jesus is re-crucified again and again and again is, is so, so wrong. Because if that were the case, it would mean that Christ's sacrifice was not complete. It was not effective. It was not, it was not done on the cross. And yet, and yet Jesus' sacrifice was completed on the cross. When he said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. He will never have to suffer again, and we will never have to suffer for our sins. His suffering... 2,000 years ago, was sufficient to pay the sin debt for all of the world for all time. He doesn't have to keep suffering. You might have had somebody do something against you to harm you, and you might have said something like this to them. You're going to pay for that. Maybe to your brother or your sister. I'm gonna, you're going to pay. You're going to pay for that. And while we may pay on this Lie in this life, we, there are consequences to the things that we do. As a believer, we'll never have to pay for those sins. We'll never have to suffer for those sins. He suffered once for our sins. There are no more eternal consequences for the believer because Christ has already paid the sin debt. When he spoke those words, it is finished. Those three beautiful words, he meant the work is done for all time. No more shedding of blood, no more suffering. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that there will never be any suffering in this life. The very book that we're reading, 1 Peter, this letter from Peter, was all about suffering. He was writing to a suffering people. He was writing to people who, who, who were scattered from all of, to all these places, Galatia and, and, and Cappadocia and Pontus, all these places. They were scattered believers being persecuted. They were suffering. And that's what the book is all about, how to live for Christ even in the midst of suffering. So it doesn't mean that we're never going to suffer, but the, we're never going to suffer as a, as a, for our sins or as a payment for our sin. Or we're never going to have to endure anything that would um, try to pay for the sins that we've, that we've committed. The sacrifice of Jesus was once and for all, and it was completely effective. And notice these words in verse 18. The just for the unjust. Although we were the sinners, it was the sinless one who suffered for us. You and I who are unjust could never complete the payment. We could never pay the debt that was against us. In the Old Testament, animal sacrifices were made in, in, in preparation for the one final sacrifice, the perfect spotless holy lamb that would one day come. They made these sacrifices and they would sacrifice animals. And even these animals had to be spotless animals, right? Perfect. They had to go through and find the very best that they had. But those animal sacrifices could never pay for our sins. Hebrews 10.4 said, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And so there had to be another sacrifice, not an animal sacrifice, but a perfect lamb that would be suitable 
And so immediately all of us are disqualified because none of us are perfect. None of us are even good enough to pay for our own sins that we've committed, much less to pay for the sins of the whole world. But there was a perfect lamb. John the Baptist saw him coming and said, Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. There was one lamb who would come, who would be perfect and spotless, who would be able to pay the sin debt for all of mankind. He's the only one that could do it. There's none righteous, but he is righteous. So Christ paid this debt. Our sins were forgiven. Not only that, still in verse 18, he suffered for us, for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This is what was accomplished by his sacrifice. Not only were our sins paid for through the death of Jesus Christ, but we were brought, we were brought to God. That's the language, that he might bring us to God. See, prior to this, we were the enemies of God. We were alienated from God. We were at enmity. Between, there was enmity between us and God. This is what Colossians 1.21 says. And you, Paul is writing to church people like you and I, Christians, right? He's writing to Christians, and he said, And you, that were sometime or in the past, sometime in the past, you were alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked work, by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Romans 5 said, We were the enemies of God. And you may think, Well, I was, I mean, I was lost, but I was never really God's enemy. But according to God's word, prior to salvation, we were the enemies of God. We were enemies with the most holy God. And you didn't have the power to be reconciled to him. Hold your place here and go to 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my favorite chapters. Paul, again, the human author, beginning in verse, verse 17 is the well-known verse. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Verse 18, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So we see we were enemies of God, but now the work of, of, of God is to reconcile us to himself. We could never have reconciled ourselves to him. We were his enemies. We, there was nothing that we could do. We were hopeless. If you read these verses and any of them like that in the New Testament, the point is not we were somehow able to bring ourselves up to him, but rather he condescended to our lowest state and reconciled us to him. Verse 21 said, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He, he, he sacrificed, he suffered for our sins, he brought us to him when we were so far away from him. He suffered, he died, he was, he was put in the tomb, his body was put in the tomb. But during those three days in the tomb, his, although his body was there, his spirit was not there. Verse 19, by the way, we're back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, 
At the end of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Verse 19 says, he went and he preached under the spirits in prison. And there's a lot of debate about who these spirits were. But what we do know is that they were those spirits that were, they were, they were, they were, those that were on the earth during the time of Noah, when, when Noah was preparing the ark, when Noah was preaching to them, and they were rejectors of Noah's message. That's what verse 20 says, which were sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. So during, these, during this time when his body was on the earth, Christ went and he preached under these spirits in prison that had rejected the message in Noah's day. And, and I love the, um, the, 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 the phrase that's used in verse 20 where it talks about these that had rejected Noah. And yet it said, which sometimes were disobedient, when, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. We talked about the patience of God Sunday morning. And even though ultimately only eight people got onto the ark, only eight people heeded the message of of Noah, God was long-suffering and waiting for them to come. Even though they didn't come, he was long-suffering and waiting for them to come. And I'm thankful as I'm sure you are, that God, when he called us, was long-suffering with us. Because I'm confident that the first time that, that the Lord called you, it's, it's very possible that you didn't heed his call that first time that he called you. It's possible that you waited or even rejected or even rebelled for a while. But the long-suffering and the waiting of God for us, for salvation, is the reason that we are here today. And he's still long-suffering. He's still waiting. He's still waiting on, on you and others to submit to him. He was, he's long-suffering. And I want to point out something else in this verse that is encouraging. Back in verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Eight souls. So the encouraging word here is that being in the minority is not always a bad place to be. Out of the entire Earth's population, eight people ended up in the safety of the ark. And so if you're in the minority, when you go to school, if you're in the minority and following Christ, when you go to work, if you're in the minority and following Christ, perhaps even in your own home, if you're in the minority and following Christ, don't be discouraged because that's not necessarily a bad place to be. None of these eight regretted being in the minority, right? When they saw the when they were in when they were in that boat and, and, and the waters were raising up above head level and everybody that they knew was perishing, they had no regrets about being in the minority. Eight were saved. And and the recipients of this letter from Peter would have felt this. There were a lot of similarities between Noah and his day and the day in which they lived. These people that were reading this were definitely in the minority in following Christ, just like Noah would have been. They were persecuted people. Noah was, was righteous in the, in the midst of an ungodly place, just as, as these people reading this letter, these Christians who were reading this, they were, they were righteous people trying to live righteously in a very ungodly society. Noah was a preacher of righteousness in the midst of lots of naysaying around him. And if you read the book, the book of 1 Peter, that's what you find. 
Peter is encouraging them to, to live out their life and, and to be a witness, even though it's going to be not just frowned upon. People are going to call you names. They're going to lie about you. They're even potentially going to hurt you. But, but use that as a witness. Noah believed that judgment from God was on the way. And in the next chapter, Peter's going to talk about that. The end is near. And so there were a lot of similarities. They would have, they would have felt that. And Noah's example, as well as the example in 1 Peter, ought to serve as an encouragement to us that whatever society, however society around us is, we are to live on mission for Christ. We're to, we're, even though we may be in the minority, even though we may, it may be unpopular, we're to live out our lives for the Lord, to be a witness for him, and in the end, in the end, we'll be glad that we did. Now, there's an interesting phrase, a couple of them really, coming up. In verse 20, he said that Noah, um, they were disobedient to Noah. And then he says, we're in in few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. And then, in verse 21, he says that, similarly, he says that, that baptism saves us. Now, this, of course, begs for some clarification. And Peter is, is careful to explain that, the, that, that, that baptism is not a, a spiritual cleansing. It, there's no spiritual cleansing of our sins in baptism. Verse 21, the like figure whereunto, even baptism, doth also now save us. And then he has this parenthetical expression, this phrase, in parentheses, not, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the word that he uses is figure. It's a picture. Baptism is a picture. It's a figure. It's a likeness. It's an illustration. At the end of verse, at the end of verse 20, he says that eight souls were saved by water. Now, just as these people, these eight people, were not literally saved by the water that they were in, Noah and his family. They were saved in the water. They were saved going through the water. They were in the water when they were saved. The waters were all around them. They were actually kind of baptized, in a sense, inside of the ark by the water. But it wasn't the water that saved them. It was the protection of the ark. And in baptism, we go completely under the water, which is the picture of death. Right, of Christ's death, of, of our own spiritual death. And, and then there's a, a, a coming out of the water, which is a, a, a picture of Christ's resurrection and spiritual life. And you know, when, we, when we baptize somebody, they don't, they don't, just, they don't just stay in the water they don't, or under the water. If, they did, if, 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 if when we baptize people, they just stayed under the water, that'd be really depressing services, you know? And um, the authorities would be called, it would be bad. But baptism, part of it is going under the water, but the, 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 the glorious part is them coming out of the water. Baptism doesn't end with going into the water. It, it's going in and it's rising up. It's, it's as Christ went into the earth and then he rose up out of the earth. And even though in the same fashion, those of us that were dead in our trespasses and sin, we, we were made alive in Christ. And this is the example of baptism. And so just as Noah was saved by getting onto the ark going through the water, but coming up out of the water, 
Baptism is a, is a picture of us right, not, not staying in, but rather rising up. Not, not staying dead, but rather becoming spiritually alive. We don't remain dead. We're saved. We, we are made alive. And just as, as Noah escaped the flood by running to the ark, we escape eternal damnation by running to Christ. He is our salvation. Verse 21 again says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to just reemphasize again what I've already said, that baptism is a picture, it's an illustration, it's a figure, he says, of, of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Christ went into the ground... Into the earth, we, we go under the water. This is one of the reasons why we practice immersion and baptism, one of many reasons, because Christ didn't just go partially into the ground. He, went, he, he died completely. We were dead completely in our trespasses and sins, and we were made alive. We come up out of the water. And so he says that, that baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not, it's not a, we, don't, we don't go into baptismal waters to be washed of anything, we don't go into to 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 cover or to to try to put away the stains of our sinful ways, our filthy flesh. That's not why we go in, but we go in as an answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is an is an outward work. It's our response to what what Christ has done in us. The word conscience here obviously is an inner thing. You, if you look at the person that's sitting beside you, you, you can see what they're wearing, you can see what their hair looks like, you can see what kind of shoes they have on, but you can't see their conscience. The conscience is an inner thing. It's an inner, so, so what this is, this is a baptism is the response of a good conscience toward God. It's the outward response of an inward work. That's what, that's what baptism is. That's why there is an inward work, but, but, but we, we want to show the, outward, we want to show the, the world through our outward work. And it's because, he says, of the resurrection that we've been able to be saved. Right? That's what he says in verse 21. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, our salvation would be useless. Paul said that. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. And, he said... Ye are yet in your sins. If Christ wasn't raised, it would, be, it would be like someone being baptized and staying baptized. Right? Not a good situation. But, but Christ raised, and so in the same way, when we're baptizing, we say that um, we're you know, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk a new life. We're signifying that Christ has raised and he has done a, a resurrection work in our own life, and we're no longer dead. We're now alive. So Christ died, he suffered for our sins, he went into the ground, he preached to the spirits in prison, he raised on the third day, and now, where is he? Well, we see that in verse number 22. Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Jesus is no longer... On the cross, Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Jesus is no longer walking around with his disciples like he did 2,000 years ago. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. In ancient times, the um, right hand signified power 
and, and authority. If you were to um, read through the Old Testament or even historical narratives, you would, you would find that. The right hand signified power. And so Christ, in his power, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And notice that all angels are subject to him. All authorities are subject to him. And all powers are subject to him. That covers just about everything. Now, we believe that the Lord is everywhere. He's omnipresent, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is a, a special place for him. He, he lived on the earth for more than 30 years. He made disciples. He preached. And then he went to the cross where he was crucified for our sins. He, 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 he raised from the dead three days later. And then he spent some time with his followers. And then... Standing before them, he ascended up into heaven, where he now is, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that was a, that was a sad day for the disciples when, when, when Jesus ascended. And it was a glorious thing for them to behold, no doubt, but it was a sad thing because they were losing their best friend. And they were losing the one who had taught them everything. And they, had, they were losing the one who had changed their life. They were losing the one who had called them from being fishermen and tax collectors and doctors and whatever else they did to actually giving them a purpose in life. And now they're losing the one. But, but Christ had another work to do. His work on earth was finished and now he's in heaven. And, he's, and now he's making intercession for us and he's advocating for us. Spurgeon likened it to the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament when the priests would leave the people on that day, and you'd go into the holy place. And he would be separated from them on that day in order to be with God. But even though they may have longed to be with him, it was far better for the people, for the priests to be in that place on that day with the Lord making sacrifices. He, he, he accomplished, that priest would accomplish in his, in his separation what he could not have accomplished in their presence. And now the Lord is in heaven, and he is at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us, and he is our advocate. He, he, he suffered for us on the cross, he raised for us, and now still he's, he's advocating for us. Turn, if you would, to 1 John, just a couple of pages to your right. 1 John 2. Verse 1 says this, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. I'm writing in order to keep you from sinning. But John understood that they would still sin. And so he said, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. He's the payment. He's the atonement for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is our advocate. We don't have to advocate for ourselves. We have no grounds with which to advocate on our own. We're guilty sinners. We can try to, on our own to make excuses for ourselves, but we have no excuses. You know, kids don't have to be taught to make excuses when they're, when they're caught misbehaving. It's natural, right? And they're pretty, pretty good at it. This is why I did what I did. They have very good reasons, very thought-out reasons. And, and we're no different. Whenever we sin and we're caught, we, can, we justify our sin. We, we excuse our sin. 
we shift the blame to somebody else and, I, and, and we, we, we want to say, this, she's why I sinned or he's why I sinned or this is why I did what I did. It's natural. But what if we didn't have to advocate for ourselves because there is one who is advocating for us? What if there's someone in, in heaven who knows exactly how sinful we are and yet despite that, rather than making excuses for our sins, rather than, than shifting the blame, placing the blame on somebody else for our sins, rather than justifying our sins, rather than that, he simply points to his own sacrifice on Calvary 2,000 years ago and the blood that he shed to make atonement, to, make, to, to be a propitiation for our sins. And what if, rather than making excuses for our sins, all we had to do in that moment was go before the Father in confession for our sins, knowing in confidence that he would forgive us because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is our advocate at his right hand. If you turn back just a page to the left, maybe you don't have to even turn in 1 John chapter 1. John understood, even though he was, he was writing in order to encourage them not to sin, he understood that we're all, we're all fallen human beings and we're going to sin. And so he says this to his readers, John 16, 7. If we walk in the light, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what I told you, but where we are is in 1 John 1, 7. <laughs> if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the, and the truth is not in us. Think about that every time you try to excuse something that you've done. Anytime, anytime you know you've done wrong, and you try to pass that on to somebody else, or you try to um, somehow make yourself look innocent. Just remember what John said, what the Holy Spirit said through John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That doesn't, he's not saying if you say that you are completely 100% perfect and you've never sinned in your entire life because nobody would say that. At least not many people would say that. But if you try to, if you try to excuse your sin, the, the truth is not in you. But then he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Trusting in the completed work of, of, of Christ on Calvary, does not, it does not minimize our sin. It doesn't cause us to excuse our sin. It doesn't cause us to say that our sin is no big deal. But rather, it's really just the opposite of that. It's not excusing our sin because we know that there is no excuse. The sin's been paid for. Christ suffered once, the just for the unjust, and now he is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. This is what Romans 8.34 says. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who's condemning you? It's not God. In fact, Christ is at the right hand making intercession for you. The Lord's paid for our sins, and yet we're still sin. But we, when we do sin, and we will, but when we do sin, we just know, just know that 
You're not alone. You have someone on your side. That's what an advocate is. It's a, it's a, it's a go-between. You have somebody that's on your side at all times, an advocate sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for you to come to him. And it's good for us, it's better for us for him to be there. We might think, man, I just wish Jesus was here on the earth with us. If, if I just had him like, like sitting here and teaching us, I know that I would be okay. I wouldn't be sinning and everything would be okay. And yet it's better for us that he is there. That's what, that's what Jesus said to his disciples, right? He said, I'm going to go away. And they said, no, you can't go away. And he said, well, I have to go away. And they said, no, you can't. You don't understand. You can't. We can't live without you. You cannot go away. In John, in John 16, Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you. It's better for you. It's profitable for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus said, I'm going to go away. And when I do, when I do go away, you're going to be better for it. You're going to be, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's actually profitable for you for me not to be here. For me to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. For the Holy Spirit to be living within you teaching you how to live. And then he said, he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to instruct you. He's going to help you to understand. He's going to help you to know right from wrong. It's going to be better for you. And, and, then, and the same guys who, who sat there listening, John and, and Peter, the same men that, that heard him, that were trying to get him to stay when he knew he needed to go, now they're writing to us and they're saying to us, Christ once suffered for your sin, so you didn't have to suffer anymore. And now he, he's, he died and he raised from the dead and now he's seated when all powers are subject to him. All authorities are subject to him and he's sitting at the right hand of God and he's now making intercession for you. He's on your side. He is, he's interceding. He's advocating for you. And, 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 the, and the plea from John in 1 John is don't sin. But if you do sin, as I said Sunday morning, don't hide. Don't hide from God. But rather know that you have an advocate in heaven who is pleading for you not based on your goodness thankfully because you don't have any just like I don't have any but based on his own sacrifice on the cross so if we're in Christ tonight if that is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ you've been saved washed in the blood we have a lot to be thankful for first that we're that we're saved and that we have a clear conscience before God and then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. These things are right that you sin not. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And if you're not saved, just like the millions that were alive during the time of Noah, when Noah preached, maybe you're like those, the millions who heard, you've heard the message. There's nobody here who hasn't heard the message. You've heard the message and yet still you're either putting it off or, or rejecting altogether, rebelling against, against God, just as they needed the ark to save them in that, from that water, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And just as Moses called and said, the door's open, there's enough room in here for everybody, Christ is calling and he's saying, there's enough room. I have room, come to me, come to me, come to me. And I, and I pray that if you're not saved, if you don't know the Lord, if you're not sure you know the Lord, that I pray that tonight you would come to him. And if you are saved, then I, I, my hope is that we will just find encouragement in all that Christ has done for us. We think often of his suffering and, 
And thank God that he suffered for us. I mean, thank God that he went to the cross. Thank God that he left heaven. Thank God that he, he came to this wicked earth and was, was, was just, you know, despised and for doing right. And he did that for you and for me. And, I, and we think, we, 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 rightfully, we think about that often. But, but I don't think we spend enough time thinking about what he's doing now. That is sitting at the right hand and, and, and interceding for us. And that the blood that he shed wasn't just for salvation. It didn't, it didn't just cover that, that moment and now we're kind of on our own. No, no, no. We, we're, to, we're to go to him. We're to confess our sin. We're to keep short sin accounts and trust him to enable us to live the life for his glory that he would want us to. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you for your word and for, the, for your work. We're thankful that you loved the world so much that you sent Christ for us. And he endured the, the suffering once and for all. And we can live the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity knowing that we never have to suffer, spiritually suffer for our sins. We never have to. He did it for us. And Lord, I thank you that it didn't end there, but three days later that he raised from the dead triumphantly, power over sin, power over the grave, power over hell, which gives us hope for this life. And it didn't end there either. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where now he is our intercessor and our advocate. And Lord, we have no right whatsoever to plead anything, to plead eternal life on our own, but through the sacrifice of Christ, through his atonement, through his, his sacrificial death on the cross, which was the propitiation for all of our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world, we thank you for it, Lord. Help us to be thoughtful, mindful always of what you've done for us, and not just for ourselves, Lord, but Lord, that we would be a witness to the people around us of your goodness. I pray for those here that may feel like they're in the minority in living for you in their life. The people that surround them when they go to school or go to work may not be righteous people, Lord, but I pray they would find hope and comfort in knowing that that's not really a bad thing if we're following you. Lord, I pray that in this next couple of moments, Lord, if there's something you want to, you want to teach us, that we would, we would be open, our ears and our, and our minds and our hearts would be open to listen to you. In Jesus' name. If you want to take a moment, a few moments and, and pray to yourself, come forward if you like.